Hello and welcome to Bird Curious, a podcast in which we talk about birds. Each episode we talk about a particular species, what makes it special and how to spot one. And we also explore some of the science and history of birds and birders from the UK and around the world, as well as sharing some surprising bird trivia. We're two sisters in socially distanced London, so for the time being we're focusing on birds that it's still relatively possible to see during the coronavirus crisis, even if you live in a city. This week we'll be talking about a bird that spends almost its entire life up in the sky, hardly ever landing, the swift. Sarche. And I'm Penny Sarche. Although lockdown restrictions have been eased a bit at the time that we're recording this, the government advice in England is still to stay home as much as you can. So birdwatching is still very much a local affair for us at the moment. Have you seen anything interesting recently, Joe? Um, mostly, you know, just seeing things through my window. I've seen um, some families of starlings, like some young juveniles coming and drinking water out of gutters and things. And that's been quite fun to watch. Oh, that's nice. I've I've been lucking out actually on the birds that we featured in the podcast so far. So yesterday I looked out the window and saw a goldfinch in a tree across the road for the first time on just a street tree. And now that we put the time in last episode to really like learn what a wren sounds like, I'm hearing them everywhere, which is great. Yeah. So they really are as common <laughs> as common as all that. So yeah, in the park and on the street and, and everywhere. So I've I've really been enjoying being able to spot that. Yeah. I know we laughed about it but the machine gun rattle thing is quite a good way of kind of remembering it and picking it out isn't it yeah yeah it does it's it's stuck in my brain I have to say um one of my burning from home highlights recently has to be um yesterday morning when I was drinking coffee just after waking up and suddenly swifts just started uh, like circling our building and swooping right by the window and giving you the sort of view you just really rarely get of a swift really up close so I was really, I was really delighted about that, um, especially because Swifts are our bird of the show. So as you touched on at the start of the show, Penny, Swifts have an incredible lifestyle, don't they? They spend almost all their lives up in the sky and barely ever come down to land. This is a fact that I always think about when I see them arrive each summer, and I find it truly mind-blowing. Mm. They land to nest, but pretty much everything else they do up in the air. They drink, mate, and even sleep on the wing. I mean, how is that even possible? <laughs> how can you sleep while flying and not bump into things? Yeah, it's just incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah. Researchers had thought for decades that swifts must sleep while flying, and this has been confirmed in recent years by studies that monitor and track individual swifts. Mm. Uh, some common swifts, uh, which is the species that we get in the UK, have been found to spend as long as 10 months straight in the air without landing. Mm. So that really does mean that they must sleep on the wing. They seem to do this by flying up to high altitudes where they can glide and, and sleep for short periods. If they fly high up enough there's not much likelihood of bumping into anything mm. and and swifts probably don't have to worry about predators very much not many raptors are known to catch them and when they do it's probably usually birds that are already weak or, or ill 
Yeah, I've, I've seen it said they can go up to around 10,000 feet in the sky to sleep, which I think is about three kilometres up, isn't it? Gosh, it's so high, isn't it? I guess when they're up there, they're not doing this sort of aerial acrobatic speedy flying we see them do closer to the ground down here. It's I've seen they kind of use a mixture of gliding and slow wing beats to kind of sleep on the wing, which makes sense, I think. Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to know more about the neuroscience of what's going on when a swift is asleep in the sky. Yeah, I've seen it suggested that they don't sleep as deeply as we do. So they retain some sort of consciousness of the world while sleeping. Yeah, a bit like um, you've made me think of bottlenose dolphins and and some other cetaceans, which are uh, known to sleep with only half their brain at a time. Oh, right. So is that so they can kind of keep on swimming or something? I think it's a similar issue where you, you can't fully relax and switch off. So um, especially if you're still in a challenging environment like flying or or underwater. Mm, Interesting. And funnily enough, the experimental sort of folky musician Bibio has recently released an album called Sleep on the Wing. And the title track was inspired by the idea of Swiss being able to sleep while flying. Um, and the album's got this beautiful cover art as well, which features a Swift. It's lovely, isn't it? I've, I've really been enjoying uh, that album this spring. Like you say, the, the artwork is beautiful too. Yeah, and I suppose it's not surprising that Swifts inspire musicians and artists. And that this unusual lifestyle of theirs does mean that they've remained quite mysterious birds to us. We often only see them from afar, flying high above. When I see a clear photo of one, I can barely recognise it. They've got this kind of dark brown plumage. But when you actually kind of spot one, they're usually black. They look kind of black and are silhouetted up against the sky. Mm. Their bodies are streamlined. I've seen them described as kind of torpedo shaped. And they have short forked tails, which I actually noticed when they were swooping past my window the other day. But normally I don't think that really stands out when you see them up in the sky. The main thing you're likely to notice is their long sickle shaped wings. Yeah, I think that's probably the thing that I would say I, I really spot about them when they're, they're flying overhead. Whether they're low or high, they just really look like speedy black boomerangs, don't they, shooting mm. overhead? So swift by name and swift by nature. And and that shape is what makes them extremely fast flyers. Mm. So I didn't realise this, actually, but they're the fastest of any bird at level flight. Um, although, of mm. course, the peregrine falcon wins at those big vertical flights downwards. Yeah, because they have gravity helping them out a bit within those dives. Yeah, and and they're much bigger, heavier birds as well, I Mm. suppose. But the common swift, the one we have in the UK, has been recorded reaching speeds of 69.3 miles per hour, which is pretty impressive. And they typically hunt for insects at around 50 metres above the ground. And um, also on top of all of that, they often fly tens of miles from their nests each day just to hunt food. It's all very impressive, isn't it? All of the statistics. They're very fast, but actually their shape means that they can't really fly slowly and they don't have much manoeuvrability, which I hadn't really ever thought about. But you see them kind of avoiding buildings quite deftly, don't you? Yeah, I guess um, it must be about anticipating it rather than having to veer off at the last minute, Mm. I suppose. Because at 70 miles per hour, that's kind of important. (laughs) Yeah. Or 69.3, was it? (laughs) (laughs) To be more precise, yeah. So the best way to see swifts is to look out at early morning or dusk when they're particularly active and you're most likely to see them wheeling about overhead in search of insects and near nesting sites like rooftops and church spires. Mm. Um, But you may actually get your best views over ponds and lakes where swifts tend to fly lower to scoop up insects. Yeah, 
And one way I think you often know to look for them is when you hear this very distinctive sound they make. I've seen it described as a scream, but I prefer to think of it as a sort of screech. And it's a sort of very distinctive sound that I really associate with like a clear summer day. Yeah, I love it. It's kind of um, gleeful almost. Mm. And yeah, I really associate that with long summer evenings. I've been hearing their calls all summer over the street where I live and the streets I go and walk through, but I find it hard to get a good recording. They're so fast, so as soon as I hear them and get my phone out to record them, they've kind of swooped over and gone onto the next (laughs) street. I managed to get this short recording of them, which hopefully gives, like, a bit of an idea of what they sound like. Oh, yeah, yeah, that works. I mean, well done. I I've, I think I've heard a swift scream all of once so far this year and I did not get anywhere near recording it. Kudos. I was like, the alternative is just us having to kind of go, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good impression. I've heard that my swift impression is um, very similar to my dolphin impression. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another similarity between Swiss and dolphins then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I found it interesting just how hard it's been to record them because I've seen them quite a lot this summer. I saw them popping into like a crevice beneath the roof of a house locally, presumably going into like a nest. But Swiss aren't noisy at their nests. And I've also seen them hunting over a pond, but they weren't noisy then really either. So they seem to be noisiest Mm. in the evenings, I found, like when groups of them pass overhead in the street. And I was looking into this and apparently there's a phenomenon of Swiss banding together and darting around at dusk flying very fast at a relatively low level around rooftop height and making a noise and this is called these groups are called screaming parties that's amazing I've never heard that (laughs) yeah I think um the exact purpose of these parties is it's not really known it's thought to be some sort of social behavior which makes it quite appropriate to call them parties I guess you know what I I could really do with a screaming party right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes it's all you need to unwind yeah maybe they're just letting off steam (laughs) it's thought that screaming parties are a good indication that swifts are breeding nearby so that's um that's quite exciting and after these screaming parties it's thought that the breeding birds return to their nest to roost for the night while the non-breeders soar up higher into the sky to sleep on the wing as we were discussing earlier oh wow so a bit of a catch-up before bedtime yeah maybe that you know it's some sort of social function like that i think if you're listening to this from the uk you probably only have a month or so left this year in which to enjoy seeing swifts that's because one of the other fascinating things about the common swift is that they're only really british birds for a quarter of their lives every year they return to the uk for around three months from late april early may to breed And then in July or August, they head back through France and Spain and over the Sahara. And it's really for them all about going where they can get the most food. It's thought that a lack of insects in the air is what triggers their departure from the UK each summer. Well, it seems like such a tiring lifestyle, doesn't it? So much travelling and then almost never coming down, (laughs) never stopping. Mm. Um, One thing worth mentioning is that swifts are quite easily confused with swallows and martins, so sand martins and house martins all of which are summer migrants to the UK. I think if you see a swallow close up, it's easy enough to identify by the colours of its plumage. It's got that reddish throat and glossy blue back. But you're unlikely to see a swift that close up, and certainly not for long. The easiest way to tell that it's a swift, I think, is as we've discussed the distinctive screeching and the boomerang shape. Its wings are really quite long and narrow. Swallows have kind of longer, more forked tails, And then house martins and sand martins are sort of stockier, more compact shape. I don't know, is that how you'd tell them apart, Penny? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, and then also in the UK, swallows and both types of martin have more white on their bodies. Mm. So if it's fast and screaming and relatively high in the air and mostly dark, then it's a swift. Um, but that doesn't work quite as well on continental Europe, um, where the alpine swift, for example, has quite a lot of white on its belly. Yeah, and another thing is that you won't see swifts perching on cables or fences in the way swallows commonly do. Swifts have really small legs and and can barely walk. Yeah, the common swift scientific name, Apis Apis, means footless footless. <laughs> so they do Isn't actually that a musical? have feet. <laughs> they do actually have feet, but their feet and their legs are very small and they have funny toes. So it's four on each foot, but they're arranged as two sideways pairs. Ah. Plus, it's worth noting that Swifts don't build nests outside. Um, House martins typically build their nests on the outer walls of buildings under the eaves, but you won't see Swifts doing this. Swifts nest in holes such as crevices in buildings. And apparently Swifts have done this. They've nested in man-made structures in Britain since Roman times. Oh, wow. If you've managed to see Swift nest sites or groups of screaming Swifts, uh, screaming parties, as I now know they're called, <laughs> in the UK recently. Uh, the RSPB would really like to hear from you. They're concerned that swift numbers have more than halved in the past 20 years, mm. probably at least partly because there are fewer crevices in buildings for them to nest in. Mm. So the RSPB has teamed up with a number of other groups to launch the Swift Mapper project. And the hope is that by telling them where you've seen nesting swifts, they'll be able to map places where nest sites need protecting or when new nests sites need to be made available. But before we finish with swifts, I'd like to tell you my favourite fact that I learned while researching for this episode. Joe, do you know how swifts keep themselves clean? No, I guess I'd probably guess that they just dip a bit closer into the ponds when they're getting insects thing, but I don't think I've ever seen them do that. Yeah, so it's thought that they clean themselves by slowing down their flight when it rains so that they can bathe on the wing in the water droplets as they fall from the sky. Wow, that's amazing. They're like the archetypal summer bird, aren't they? They they kind of use summer downpours as their refreshing showers. <laughs> I know, it's quite poetic, really. Now it's time for our Birder Hall of Fame, a celebration of notable birdwatchers worldwide, both in history and living today. Penny, who will we be inducting this time? This time we've got a contemporary birder who, as well as conducting decades of research on wildlife and forest management, has also been a leader of discussions about the experience of being a black birdwatcher and other diversity issues within birdwatching. J. Drew Lanham is based in South Carolina, where he's a professor at Clemson University. He researches both the ecology of songbirds and also the role of African-Americans in conserving natural resources. His love for birds and wildlife is so profound, and I was really moved by a recent episode of the great podcast This Is Love. Um, The episode focused all about his love for the prairie warbler in particular, and it was just fascinating to listen to. Yeah, it was such a good podcast. Um, I listened to it after you recommended it. I love how um, he spoke about when he, how when he was a child, he used to play dead in a field so that vultures would swoop down towards him and he could get a closer look. Yeah, that was so amazing. As well as being a wildlife researcher, he's also an influential writer. His first book, published in 2016, is called The Home Place, Memoirs of a Coloured Man's Love Affair with Nature. And you may have come across an article he wrote in 2013 called Nine Rules for the Black Birdwatcher. This piece has really stuck with me. It ranges from warning black birdwatchers against ever wearing a hoodie or going birdwatching at night to recommending wearing binoculars and carrying three forms of identification at all times. 
Yeah, it's a sort of kind of satirical take on the challenges he's experienced. And it's also quite a um, an eye-opening read, I think, for people who haven't necessarily faced those same challenges. Mm. And I, I suppose it all feels particularly pertinent at the moment, following the George Floyd protests and that viral video of a recent incident in Central Park, New York, um, involving shocking behaviour towards birdwatcher Christian Cooper. Yes, exactly. And birdwatching communities online have really been facing up to this more in recent weeks. That Central Park incident inspired Black Birders Week on Twitter in June, in which scientists and many other birdwatchers shared their own stories of being black and loving the natural world. Mm. I definitely recommend following the hashtag Blackbirders Week, but I've also been thinking a lot about Lanham's ninth point in the rules he wrote seven years ago, He noted that there's much talk about diversifying the hobby of birdwatching, but what's needed is money. And he made the point that some birdwatchers spend, you know, astronomical sums of money on binoculars and other kit, for example, when he notes that this money could instead help people, for instance, in the Caribbean islands, conserve a lot of migratory birds that we really value and and that need our protection. His point there that diversity in birding should go far deeper than just the demographics of who's going birdwatching is a really important and interesting one. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, you know, that it's not just about challenging the stereotypes around what birders are expected to look like, but that it's also about looking at where funds are going and um, supporting conservation projects. Yeah, exactly, going, going that bit deeper. Anyway, don't just take my word for it. But far better to hear from J. Drew Lanham himself. So we'll tweet links to the podcast and the articles that I've mentioned from our Twitter account at BirdCuriousPod. Now it's time for our new segment, Meet the Family, where we look at a family of birds and some different species across the world that belong to it. So which family are you going to introduce us to first, Joe? I thought, first of all, we could meet the lovely kingfisher family, or the Alcidinidae. Kingfishers are small to medium-sized, usually colourful birds with short necks, large heads and long beaks. I think they all have quite a characterful, stout appearance, mm. makes them pretty endearing. The kingfisher family has over 90 species in it and spans the world. There are kingfishers found on every continent except Antarctica. I really didn't know that, that they were on all continents except Antarctica. I did see one in northern Japan once, and I remember being really surprised that it was exactly the same kind we get in the UK. That's impressive reach. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah, so that species, the common kingfisher, is the only species of kingfisher we see in the UK. Um, It's actually in our Bird Curious podcast logo, and I think it's a favourite of many birdwatchers here. Yeah, I mean, they're they're just so stunningly colourful, and and like you say, they're, they're quite stout aren't they they're pretty cute with their squat and chunky shape um but then on top of all of that they're just incredibly masterful with their fishing skills so there's a lot to love about this bird yeah exactly and when you are lucky enough to see them they're just instantly recognizable with their striking orange and blue plumage i always associate the kingfisher with this dazzling flash of blue Mm. and that kind of streaks past on a river or canal maybe but i recently found out that um amazingly this the actual sort of colour of the bird's blue feathers can be said to be brown. At least this is what they look like in very low light. The feathers that usually appear to us as blue don't actually contain any blue pigment. In fact, most vertebrates can't produce blue pigment. So we see the feathers as blue in the light because of a phenomenon known as structural coloration. The feathers contain these nanostructures that reflect and scatter the shorter wavelengths of sunlight, producing this wonderful blue effect. 
Uh-huh. I see structural coloration strikes again. There's so many vivid examples of this in nature. Uh, lots of butterflies, for example. Yeah. yeah, so it's sort of a kind of trick of the light, but then I guess you could say, um, you know, all colours are in some way or another. Yeah. There are lots of other colourful kingfisher species around the world. Um, one of my favourites is the oriental dwarf kingfisher, which lives in rainforests in Southeast Asia. It's only about 13 centimetres long, so really small. The kingfisher we see in the UK, which is um, not, not particularly big already, is 16 centimetres long. So this is smaller than that. The oriental dwarf kingfisher looks almost like it's been drawn using highlighters. It combi- its colour scheme combines these luminous shades of pink, yellow, blue, purple. I think it's almost like a disco version of the kingfisher. <laughs> yeah, I looked up this bird and it's incredible. It's like a child coloured in a British kingfisher with psychedelic colours instead. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh no, who did we let colour in the kingfisher? No, it's absolutely gorgeous. On the other end of the scale, there's the largest member of the kingfisher family, a bit of a bruiser, the laughing kookaburra, an Australian bird that's about 43 centimetres long, much bigger than the kingfishers we get in the UK. The laughing kookaburra is not as spectacularly colourful as the other kingfishers we've been discussing. Its plumage is mostly brown and whitish, but it's still a very charismatic bird, I find, with loads of character. Yes, I would absolutely love to see a kookaburra in the wild. Yeah, it's particularly famous for its call, which is said to sound like fiendish laughter, Um, hence its name, the laughing kookaburra. In fact, the word kookaburra itself also relates to the bird's call. It's, It's an onomatopoeic name derived from an Australian Aboriginal language. And it has lots of other names and nicknames too, including the laughing jackass. Seems a bit harsh. (laughs) (laughs) One final thing to note is that despite their name, all kingfishers are not fish specialists. Uh, So the kingfishers we see in the UK certainly are experts at fishing, but many species in the kingfisher family have unspecialised diets or are mainly insectivorous. In fact, the laughing kookaburra's diet includes snakes. Oh, wow. Members of the kingfisher family um, can take prey from the ground, the air, plants, so it's not always from water. But generally, they are sit-and-wait predators, so they sit on a perch, wait until they see some prey below them, then swoop down to catch it. What a beautiful family. Finally, it's time for Bird Spurious, a dose of trivia with a tenuous link to birding. Where are you leading me this time, Joe? Well, you know how Bombay duck is actually a fish, not a duck? It's the bumalo fish. Yeah, that's always confused me. Yeah, well, conversely, the barnacle goose is a goose, but (laughs) for a while it was sort of treated as a fish, a shellfish. (laughs) Apparently, in medieval times, people in the British Isles weren't aware of the summer breeding grounds of barnacle geese as they breed in the Arctic. They would see the geese arrive in the British Isles in the autumn without having seen them have any nests or eggs locally. Around the same time, autumn gales would blow driftwood ashore with barnacles on. So the belief arose that these geese hatched from barnacles, hence why the barnacle goose is called the barnacle goose and the goose barnacle is called the goose barnacle. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen a range of different aspects of the goose barnacle's appearance discussed as possible explanations for why there was thought to be this link between the barnacle goose and the goose barnacle. (laughs) Perhaps because both the barnacles and the geese are sort of black and white. Perhaps because the barnacles look a bit like the heads of the geese. Perhaps because the barnacles have long, dark, fleshy stems that are said to look like goosenecks. Or perhaps because barnacles have these food-gathering appendages, cirri, that were thought to look like goose feathers sticking out of their shells. I think there's something almost slightly creepy about that idea, you know, that there's these sort of geese stuck in these barnacles with their 
feathers mm. sticking out. I think it's worth having a look at photos of goose barnacles and barnacle geese online and seeing which of these theories kind of makes the most sense for you. Do you think it's to do with their colour? Do you think it's to do with the fleshy stems? What made people think that they were linked? I think you can see a sort of logic to a few of these ideas, really. Hmm. You don't sound very convinced, Penny. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think this is all quite ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, the belief that barnacle geese hatch from goose barnacles appears to have lasted into the 18th century at least, and this belief was used to justify eating barnacle geese on Fridays when meat was not allowed because it was thought to be more fish than fowl. <laughs> so I'm really proud to say that this is the first bird spurious that I have actually known. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's one of those that I feel the need to check whenever I think about it, because <laughs> surely this can't be true. And it really does make me laugh that we have both a barnacle goose and a goose barnacle <laughs> that really actually have nothing to do with each other. Um, but that's, I really didn't know that this was used as a loophole for eating goose on a Friday. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you know how it's become traditional to have fish and chips on a Friday? I suppose we should be grateful that it's not barnacle goose and chips. (laughs) (laughs) Very grateful. That's it for this episode of Bird Curious. The show is written and produced by us, Penny and Joe Sarchet, and is edited by Joe too. Our music is by Chris Warrington, our sound production is by James Telford, and our beautiful artwork is by Elizabeth Querstret. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BirdCuriousPod. Please do tell us about any great birds you've seen recently. You can also tweet us to suggest bird trivia for our Bird Spurious segment. Please do recommend the show to any friends or family you think might also be bird curious. You can subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.